A scripture this morning is from Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. That's on page 949-949 on the Black Pew Bibles. Let's pray first. Father, thank you for being a God who has revealed himself. And we have this in your written word. Thank you for Paul's letter. We ask that you help us to hear and see what you want us to hear and see. By your spirit, be with our preacher in our hearing and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians 1, 15. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of this great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. It's a pretty dense passage, and I'm going to come back to it, so you might want to keep your Bibles open. You might also want a copy of the manuscript for now to read along or to take with you later. So Sylvia is coming around passing them out. If you want one for any reason, please get one from her. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, the passage we just heard is mainly a prayer. It's a prayer written from a prison cell written to a small church and for a small church in the midst of a great city, written by a man, the Apostle Paul, who had spent three years working in that church, who later came back to pay a visit to its leaders, who knew the situation and the needs of that church intimately, who loved that church passionately. How does the Apostle Paul, pray under those circumstances for this church he loves? What does he ask God to grant them? What, what really strikes me about this great prayer, it's one of two really great prayers. Brenda referred to the other one in chapter 3 at the beginning of the service, but let's stick with this one. What really strikes me about this one is what Paul doesn't pray for. Paul is not praying for these Christians to receive something new that they lack. He's praying for them to understand things that they already have so that they can stand firm and be confident 
in those things. He's praying for them to have eyes to see things that are already there, that are already theirs. What are those things? Well, Paul names three things, three things that the Ephesian church needed, three things that really any church needs, that our church needs, that any church needs in, in, in any time and place, and that any church already has. They're present already because God is always already present. First, he prays that you may know the hope to which God has called you. It's in verse 18. Second, that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. That's also in verse 18. And third, that you may know the immeasurable greatness of his power for us or towards us who believe. Verse 19. Hope inheritance, power. Paul wrote those things to the church in Ephesus knowing that the Christians in Ephesus had reasons to feel disempowered and disinherited and unhopeful. The social framework and the political framework of Ephesus in the first century was one in which Christians didn't have much power. They were a small minority of the population. For the most part, they didn't have a lot of influence. It wasn't the leading citizens of Ephesus that became believers. Christianity in many parts of the world at that time had more of a negative image than a positive image. Who were were the great personalities of this marginal subculture? Well, Well, there was Jesus, you know, who could be dismissed as that crucified rabbi who all the other rabbis rejected and whatever happened to him. Oh, and yeah, there's Paul, Paul the traveling preacher with, with all the crazy stories and the wild look in his eyes that, that, that one king, Festus, said, Paul, you're insane. Where's Paul now? Oh, yeah, he's in prison, writing letters from prison. There wasn't a lot of obvious power surrounding the church in Ephesus like a glowing aura. And what might make the Christians in Ephesus feel disinherited? Well, maybe it was comparing themselves to their pagan neighbors. Pagan neighbors who had magnificent temples like the world-famous temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's enormous. Besides that, the temple treasury, which functioned like a bank, lots of wealth at their disposal. Even the Jews had a temple in Jerusalem. What did the Christians in Ephesus or the Christians anywhere at that time have except a few houses to meet in? And in centuries to come, they had to go underground. What monument would cause future generations to remember them? What was their inheritance? There wasn't much to speak of, wasn't much to look at. And what might make Christians in Ephesus feel hopeless? Well, besides the things I just mentioned, their lack of power and their lack of wealth, their marginalized place in society, the world just kept right on apparently, with its fallen and sinful ways, and yet it mostly prospered. And Christians went right on trying to be good, trying to do the good works that God called them to, and yet they often suffered. And this went on. Another day would go by, and another, and another, and a week, and a year, and a decade, and no judgment fell on the wicked, and no reward 
came to the righteous, and maybe they started to wonder, like Christians often do, why are we doing this? When's God going to come? When's Jesus going to come back? When's all the things we hope for, when are they going to come to pass? So what hope does the Apostle Paul offer to this church? What inheritance does Paul describe for them? What power does he want to open their eyes to? Well, it's all in the passage we heard. Paul just sort of works backwards through those three main ideas of hope, inheritance, and power. He starts with power. That you, is just carrying right on in his prayer, I pray that the eyes of your heart will, will be opened, that you may know the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. And you know, This is where I might want you to look in your Bibles. We really have to connect verse 19 to verse 20. Because in Greek, the sentence doesn't end. That period, that full stop at the end of verse 19 doesn't really belong there. Sometimes translators do that, I think, just to make the sentences readable in English. But we have to make the connection that Paul is making in his mind and in his sentence. Let me tweak the translations just a little bit here, and I think we'll get a better sense of what Paul means and what he's trying to say. Paul's praying like this, that you may know the immeasurable greatness of God's power for us who believe according to, or, or you might translate that a little differently, corresponding exactly to the working of his great power, which worked in Christ Jesus by raising him from the dead. That's the connection Paul wants to make. And we've got to, we have to make sure we don't lose sight of it. I want you to see, he says. I want you to see that the same power which raised Jesus from the dead is the power now at work in you who believe. Sometimes I think as Christians, because it's so central to our faith, we lose sight of one important little thing. Raising the dead is a pretty amazing thing. Caesar couldn't do it. The whole Roman army couldn't do it. If you could even imagine Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping working together and putting all of the the resources of knowledge and technology that might ever be at their disposal together, they could not raise a single person from the dead. That's something only God can do. Only God has that power. And that's the power at work in the church. The power that called the universe into being out of nothing and that raises the dead. That's what Paul wanted and prayed for the Christians in Ephesus to see with the eyes of their hearts. The power at work in you, in us, is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and that seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And I don't know if you realized it, but in that gushing sentence, Paul kind of seamlessly shifted from talking about God's power the power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in the heavens, to talking about, to to borrow another phrase from this passage, the glorious, the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. Because when, when God gave Jesus a name that is above every name, 
every other name, not only now, but for all the ages to come. He's talking about an inheritance. He's talking about a legacy. He's talking about an everlasting glory that will make all the wonders of all the worlds look like a cheap movie set. Even the great marble temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. Even Bascom Hall. Even the Empire State Building or the White House or, or the, the, what's that building in, in Dubai called? The, the Burj Khaifa? Currently the tallest building in the world until someone builds a taller one. These will look like nothing when Jesus returns. And please remember this, dear friends. This inheritance which God lavished on Jesus is an inheritance which Jesus and his Father intend to share with you and me and with all God's family. We started in verse 15 this morning. All of these breaks are a little bit artificial. Let me back up to verse 13. Paul says, In him, in Christ, you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. And listen, this is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. This is the down payment on our inheritance now. We have part of it. We have a great part of it. We have the Holy Spirit and all the Spirit's power as a pledge of our inheritance. We are co-heirs with a person whose name is above all names, whose throne is above all thrones. You need to remember that when you feel disempowered and disinherited. And that's what Paul comes back to in verse 22 as he moves through this morning's passage, through his prayer. The power and the authority that characterize Christ's inheritance. And, and, and then he takes it one step further. Listen. And he, God, put all things under his, Christ's feet, and has made him the head over all things for the church. God has made Christ the ruler of all things for the church, which is his body. You can't get more intimate than the connection you have to your own body, can you? If I squeeze your arm, you'll feel it. His body, the fullness of him. We are the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's about hope. Hope is about fulfillment. Fulfillment of dreams. Fulfillment of promises. Fulfillment of expectations. I can't give you. I can't dream up for you. I can't even imagine a greater hope than the one Paul just declared. God has put all things under Christ's feet for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. These words declare to us an identity and a future and a hope that is beyond our imagining, possibilities we can't even dream of. So I want to ask you if you actually believe this. Tim often ends his sermons that way. Do you believe this? And we say yes. Sometimes I think we need a little more time to think about it. So my do you believe this is coming just a little bit earlier this week. 
And I'm not really interested in questioning whether you believe it. I'm not challenging your faith. But I want us to think about the implications of these things together. I want us to ponder and consider what these things Paul is talking about might actually mean for us as Christians here and now. And for us as a congregation in Madison on the University of Wisconsin campus. How does this this hope shape our lives in our neighborhoods, at our jobs. How can we benefit from, and, and, and to use a, a kind of overused word, leverage this inheritance? How do we plug ourselves in to this power that comes from the creator and redeemer of the universe? This power that's always available to us. Let's start right there with power. I think we often feel disempowered as Christians. Here on a university campus, maybe especially here in a city, a a, a small but sophisticated city like Madison, what Christians believe and what Christians say doesn't always seem credible or compelling or even plausible to others. Christian students sometimes come to me and talk about how they struggle with this in their classes. Just this past week, someone told, told me how challenging he was finding it to be a disciple of Jesus in the workplace, to really embody faith in that setting. We sometimes feel powerless, maybe even most of the time. Um, I think in the university, a lot of that comes from the sciences, a, sci- a, a quasi-scientific worldview that that questions the very foundations of our faith. Richard Dawkins boldly proclaims that that science has disproved the existence of God. Um, Just saying, as a non-scientist, I don't think that's something a real scientist can actually say. And as I look around this room, I do see a few scientists. I see a professor of environmental science, a professor of integrative biology, a professor of botany, a professor of soil science, a professor of anthropology, a professor of chemistry. I see people in nutritional sciences and and anthropology. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to stand up, but I don't think if you thought science disproved the existence of God, I don't think you'd be here worshiping God with us this morning. Thank you for being here. But if we feel powerless, we need to remember that God has power and God has wisdom and God has demonstrated those things. And we're not empowered because we have scientists. We're empowered because what God manifests to scientists is real, the wonders of creation. God has demonstrated his power everywhere we can look And according to Paul, God has demonstrated his power supremely by raising Jesus from the dead. And I know that's something you have to take on faith. You can't prove that scientifically. But it's still what a Christian would consider a historical fact that's never been disproved. What I want to say is that another way that God demonstrates his power is when we do things that we can only do because of God's power working in us. That doesn't always look spectacular, but what God's grace and God's power can do are pretty amazing. When you resist temptation successfully, and I hope you do sometimes, that's a work of God's power in you because you don't have the strength to do it. When you overcome sin 
when you get out of some addiction, when you fix a problem in your life by God's grace, that's God's power working in you. When you exercise self-control, when you show kindness, when you live faithfully within the covenant of marriage or as a parent or as a child, those are workings of God's power and they are greater and more important than you probably realize. Those are things the world actually needs and that are in pretty scarce supply right now. I would suggest that if the church wants to be more successful in evangelism, studying apologetics is not the way to do it. Learning to live faithfully according to the word of God is the way to become a compelling witness to Jesus Christ. When you forgive, when you experience reconciliation, when you make yourselves vulnerable to others, and when you open your hearts to ask and give forgiveness, when you speak and another person is built up, when you exercise a spiritual gift, even if you're scared to do it, those things are working workings of God's power. And sometimes God's power is more spectacular than that. I know a lot of you have some pretty great stories of what the Lord has done in you and your life and building your families and building your careers. And we tell each other those stories and we should do that more. We should do that here in public worship. I'm going to try to bring back that little part of worship that we call stories of God in our lives so that we can keep on telling each other stories. But we need to do that because God's power is at work in us. What about inheritance? Over the millennia since the days of the Ephesian church, the church has stored up a pretty large legacy here in the world. There are cathedrals and colleges, monasteries and all kinds of monuments, a landscape full of Christianity's legacy. And in some places... The building of churches is still going on, though in lots of places the church is starting to lose ground. I know of one nearby church that's under some pretty heavy pressure from developers to sell their building. As you head east from here, across the Isthmus of Madison, you'll find places where that's already happened. A church right near James Madison Park that's been subdivided into Apartments, hop up to Mifflin Street. There's an old African mission, Methodist Episcopal Church that's now condominiums. Another across East Washington Avenue that's now called the Hail Mary Sports Bar. A little farther out, another little church that just came on the market. You might not even notice some of these buildings because of the larger buildings that are going up all around them. I think there's one going up around this building. We're fenced in. Are any new churches being built in downtown Madison? And what's our future as a congregation? Not all of you even know this, but this nice building we only rent. Where will we be in 10 years? Well, these things shouldn't worry us too much. Not because we have the resources to face them but because God does. And God didn't call us mainly to build buildings. Our inheritance is not in this world. Our inheritance is where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And that said, we need to use what we have here and now in this world for God's glory and the good of others. 
We shouldn't just be building our own lives. We should be building God's kingdom. And above all, we need to understand the hope that God calls us to, the real hope that God calls us to, that so many people in the world don't have, and we need to live lives that are shaped by that hope. And maybe the ultimate measure of whether we see and understand God's power, our inheritance, and the hope that, I repeat, is already ours in Christ. Maybe the ultimate measure of that is if we not only enjoy and appreciate and put into practice the things that God has given us here in the church, but if we share them with others around us. If we have hope, we ought to offer that hope to others and make sure that they aren't deprived of hope. The church needs to be engaged in both evangelism and social justice work. Both of those are shaped by hope. Both of those are necessary and actually they're highly compatible. If we have an inheritance, we need to do what Jesus did, invite others to share it. If we have power from God, we need to exercise it in faith, hope, and love, patiently, hopefully, and for the good of others. That's how the church has really been built, not with stones and mortar, not with trowels and cranes, but by people loving and serving their neighbors. That's what wins people to Christ, and that's what brings glory to God. God is not glorified in a building. I mean, in some small way, maybe yes, in the way he might be glorified in a song or a good paper on chemistry. But God is glorified in the works of his people. And in case you don't remember from our study last week, the first part of Ephesians 1, that's the main thing that God chose us for before the foundation of the world, that we should bring glory to him by how we live. So we need to spend some of our inheritance now for that. Trust and believe and firmly hope that God will manifest his power in us and exercise his power through us as we do the good works that God has prepared for us. He not only chose us, but he prepared the good works for us. And I think Pastor Jim will have something to say about that next week when he preaches on the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. But for now, I'll just kind of end in the spirit of this morning's passage and offer a prayer that God will open our eyes to what we already have and open our hearts to share it. So please pray with me. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. We say amen to Paul's prayer for our time and place. Help us to understand and be channels of your power. Help us to see our inheritance and share it eagerly and invitingly. Help us to live in hope and make decisions that are not shaped by calculations of profit or our own fears and limitations and the shape of our own possibilities, but help us to live in the hope to which you have called us in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.